encourage you to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. A couple weeks ago we had a chance of looking at the, the first half of John 6, the first 21 verses, and there we saw these two miracles that Jesus performs. The first miracle is that of multiplying this food. He is given a few loaves of bread and five fish, and with this insufficient meal, Jesus multiplies it and, and feeds somewhere between ten to 20,000 people. Not to mention the 12 baskets of leftovers that the disciples would have picked up after, after supper. And the point of the miracle we saw was that Jesus is the Christ. He is the God who provides for his people. And for those who trust in God, that's a wonderful promise. It's a reminder of what we know in Psalm 23, that, that for those who trust in him, we are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And with God as our shepherd, we shall not want. All that we need, his hand has and will provide. That's wonderful news. Praise God for that promise of provision. But in order to receive that provision, we know that the sheep must follow their shepherd. That's where the difficulty comes in. It's hard. It's hard for us to trust God, to trust our shepherd. It's hard for us to give up control of setting our course in our life. Because what if, what if in trusting the shepherd, he gives us something that we don't want, that we don't like? Now, up to this point, There's been a large crowd. The crowd has been growing that is following Jesus in John 6. It's a a crowd that's huge, thousands of people. And they're impressed with Jesus. In fact, they're so impressed by chapter 6, verse 15, they are wanting to crown Jesus as their king. But we saw that Jesus refuses their coronation. And he withdraws. And we saw that the reason that he withdraws is because he refuses to be a puppet of the people. The crowd wanted Jesus to conform to their idea of what a king should be. They wanted a a political king that would come in and, and wipe out Rome. They thought that was their biggest need. And so they struggled to trust Jesus as the king that he is. The struggle heightens in chapter 6. And we see it kind of come to a climax. And the struggle that we see in chapter 6 as Jesus explains the the feeding of the 5,000, the struggle explains, uh, offers a a challenge for us today as we read it. How can we trust God? God. How can we trust God when life hurts, when God's timing seems to us to be late? How can we trust God when what he's doing doesn't make sense, when what he's doing is not what we hoped he would do? How can we trust Jesus for the God that he is without adding the small print demands that he conformed to our desires? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And what we see first is this. Point number one, if you're taking notes, point number one is this. Get an honest self-assessment. You want to trust God? Number one, get an honest self-assessment. And we're going to see this in verses 22 through 40. So let's pick up the story in verse 22. John writes, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where... When did you come here? Jesus answered them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. One of the first things we see here is that an honest self-assessment involves an honest view of our heart's motives. After Jesus feeds the multitudes in the beginning of chapter 6, he sends the disciples ahead of himself in the boat. So they're on the Sea of Galilee crossing over, and Jesus, we know, stays behind in order to pray. After praying, Jesus didn't have a boat to ride. So how is he going to get there with his disciples? Well, if you're Jesus, it's no problem. You just walk on the water, and that's what he does. He walks on the water, and he meets up with his disciples, get in the boat, gets in the boat with them, and they arrive at Capernaum. The crowds don't know about this, and so they're, they're curious. Well, when did you get here? How did you get here? And instead of answering their question, Jesus then turns the light on their motives. They're clamoring to get to him. They're seeking for him. And then when they, can, when they ask him, when did you get here? He turns the light on their motives. That's what we see in verse 26. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, you are seeking me. Why? Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're following him because of the bread. Yeah, they saw the sign that Jesus had performed, the miracle, but they were so concerned about life in this world that they missed the very thing that the sign said about Jesus. All they could see was how Jesus could be useful. Look at, look at his miracle. Look at his power. Look what he just did. And all they could see was that Jesus could be useful for them in getting the things that they wanted. Food. Success. Health. The praise of man. Now these gifts and many others are good. They're gifts from God. But gifts from God are not meant to be worshipped. They're meant to be enjoyed. These gifts from God are temporary and they are fragile. Relying on the gifts of God for life, relying on the gifts of God for satisfaction and joy, leaves us as fearful, anxious, and exhausted people. What if the market changes? What if so-and-so's opinion of me changes? What if they don't like me anymore? What if I get sick? What if, what if, what if? And when the what-ifs take over in our hearts, it shows that we've forgotten what Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 6, verse 20. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus was showing his disciples, listen, if, if you've got me in your boat, if, if I'm with you, you have nothing to fear. You don't have to fear about the next, you don't have to worry about the next meal. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. If I'm with you in your boat, I will walk on water to get to you and provide what you need. You don't need to be afraid. But again, if we're going to receive Jesus into our boat, that means that we must trust him. Not as we want him to be, but as he is. Friends, I am glad that you are here with us at First Baptist this morning. If you're listening online, I'm glad that you are listening in online as well. But let me ask, why? Why are you here? Why are you seeking Jesus? It's possible to come to church read our Bibles, pray our prayers, and do religious things. To, it's possible to look respectable on the outside, while on the inside we are driven, our hearts are driven by fear and pride and selfishness. Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful. And so in order for us to assess our heart's motives, we need God's help. That's why we need the light of God's word, the light of God's word that searches the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 
We need to regularly be reading God's word. We need to be at church. We need to, we need to be under his word. That's why we also need to pray and ask God to search our hearts. Who knows our hearts? Our hearts are deceitful, but God is not deceived. And so we ask God to search our hearts. And it's also why we need close and honest relationships with other brothers and sisters in our church. We might not be the experts on ourselves, but sometimes people can see in us what we can't see in ourselves. And so we need those close and loving relationships in a church family. Because in knowing, as God uses his word, as he, as he searches our hearts, as he uses these close relationships, and he shows us our hearts, in knowing our hearts' motives, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's beginning to offer us something better than looking for life in the things that perish. Look at verse 27 again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So self-assessment involves looking at our motives, having an honest assessment of our motives. Self, self, an honest self-assessment also means being honest about our capabilities. You might say what well, we're incapable of. The crowds, they're following Jesus because they're worried about the next meal. Where are we going to get our bread? Jesus provided bread. Maybe he'll provide the next meal. That's why they're following him. But, but Jesus knows that life is more than bread and clothing. And he's already promised to provide the needs of those who trust in him. So he's trying to say, don't worry about that. You're, you're worried about the wrong thing. And so Jesus is, is in, in chapter 6, Jesus is showing these people and us a deeper need. He's pointing, he's pointing us to what our physical hunger is actually meant to point us to. The reason we have physical hunger is to point us to our spiritual hunger that we all have. Our need for the food that endures to eternal life. And Jesus announces in chapter 6, I am the one who came to give you this food. Like an FBI agent who flashes their badge. I'm an FBI agent. That God has set his seal on Jesus means that it's, it's him flipping his badge. He's authorized by God the Father to give this bread, to give this food that endures to eternal life. He's the only one, by the way, who is authorized to give this life. Sounds good, right? Disciples hear, the, the, the crowd hears this about this food that he has to offer, and they like it. So they, they ask Jesus in verse 28, okay, we want this bread. What must we do to be doing the works of God. And the works of God there in verse 28 refers to the things that God demands. That's what they have in mind. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, they, in this question, they display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge that God gives them. In other words, their pride and their naivete about their ability lead them to see this bread that Jesus offers as a transaction. If we obey, if we do the work, then God owes us bread. That's what they think. And they're, because of their pride, they're blind to the fact that it's, it's a gift. Look at verse 27. It's bread the Son of Man will give you. Not sell you, but give to you. You don't work for a gift. You receive it freely. Jesus is talking about grace. Friends, to those here who are weary, who are exhausted, who are tired, because every day you are, you are laboring, to prove yourselves to God. You're, you're doing good deeds. You're, you're, doing, you're trying to do the right thing, the thing that God calls you to in order to earn his favor. 
Listen to verse 29 again. This is Jesus speaking. This is the work of God. Okay, what do I got to do? What's the work of God? That you believe in him. Whom he has sent. Notice that they ask, what are the works, plural, we must do? Jesus' answer is the work you must do. It's singular. There's one thing, church. There's one thing that you must do. What's that work? That you believe. That you trust him. So do they? Do these people trust Jesus? Look at verse 30. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus called them to believe in verse 29. And yet they demand another sign. And don't forget what just happened in the beginning of chapter 6. He just fed them from a, a measly meal. He just performed this miracle and fed thousands of people. So right on the heels of that miracle, they demand another miracle and another miracle. It's, we, we tend to think that if I just had a miracle, I would believe. And what it shows is that we, it, it's, it's like a, it, it has diminishing returns. We, we don't believe because of miracles. We just want more and more and more, right? And so they, they come to Jesus and say, well, Moses, he was great. He gave us bread in the wilderness. If you're greater than Moses, give us a sign that we can believe in you too. Again, the tragedy is that he had just done a miracle in feeding the multitude. But they didn't have ears to hear what that miracle said about Jesus. And so Jesus very mercifully makes that, the point of the miracle very plain. It wasn't Moses who gave you the manna. It was God. You're obsessed with Moses and, his, and keeping his law. But, but this law pointed to God. It pointed to me. The point of God giving bread in the wilderness, the point of me giving you bread in John 6, was not the bread. The point was me. The true bread from heaven. By true bread, he means the spiritual bread. He's referring to himself in verse 32. Who would give life to the world, verse 33. But again, these people are so earthly minded, so preoccupied with their career, with getting food, with the things of this world. They're so caught up in those things that they don't get it. They're like the woman at the, at the well in, in, in John 4. that they keep, She keeps thinking about water, 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 and she's missing it. She's, he's talking about himself. Same thing here. And so he makes it clear to them in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Get your, get your, get your, your minds on, on earthly things. Verse 35, look up. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, church, that is a wonderful promise from Jesus. We're all hungry. We're all thirsty. And he's, and he, and he's saying, you come to me, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. This is where contentment is. And so Jesus is there. God in the flesh, standing right before them, offering the true bread that their hearts and souls long for. And yet, verse 36 ends by telling us that they do not believe. One way to look at verses 30 through 36 is to notice that verses 30 through 36, um, the emphasis there is on human responsibility. The emphasis is human responsibility. In verse 32, Jesus says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
So if, if, if the father is giving bread, even to those who are not going to receive it, he's giving bread. What, what must, what's expected then? That you receive it. It's a, it's a genuine offer from God to those that are standing right in front of Jesus. And yet they refuse. Why do they refuse? Why don't they believe? Keep your finger in chapter 6, flip back to chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus tells us why they don't believe. Chapter 5, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, he's saying, you don't believe. You refuse to come to Jesus because you're craving the praise of man. You're enslaved to the praise of man. Does that make sense? When we, when we do something, if there's a work we can do to earn God's favor, well, that gives us a chance to impress. All right, people, watch out. Here I come. I'm going to do the works of God, right? And we're out to impress. And if we do the works of God, we have a reason to boast. We can even think that God owes us. Faith though, does not boast. The only thing that faith boasts in is in Christ. Faith admits, I can't do this. I am incapable of doing this. I can only receive that which was done for me in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. The crowds don't like that. They're looking for the praise of man. They want to be able to boast. They want to have, they want to have some, some uh, capital in the eyes of others. And so part of what we see here is the crowd overestimates their ability to be a good person such that they can earn God's favor, and they underestimate their sin. They overestimate their ability, they underestimate their sin, and they underestimate the, 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 the catastrophic effects of sin in their life. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that, that our sin leaves us spiritually dead, as responsive to God as a rock. And so from the perspective, if we just look at this, this call to eternal life, if, from the perspective of human responsibility, verses 30 through 36 show us that eternal life looks like a lost cause. Dead people don't respond. So what hope is there? Well, Jesus keeps going in verse 37. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's some good news here, church. If, if verses 30 36 is focusing on human responsibility, 37 through 40 focuses on God's sovereignty, his unlimited power. The reason that eternal life is not a lost cause is because, verse 37, here's why, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's Jesus speaking. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're dead. You must be born again. Friends, our God, praise God, our God is the God who raises the spiritual dead. You do that. Good luck. God can do that. Because he's sovereign. He can walk into a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and say, prophesy Ezekiel, and those dry bones come to life. That's what our God does. 
He takes out the unresponsive heart of stone and that of an unbeliever and transplants it with a heart of flesh and indwells that person with his spirit so that they are responsive to God. As a result, verse 37, all, look at verse 37, all, not some, all that the Father gives to me, that's Jesus, will, not maybe, will come to me. All will come that the Father gives. Guaranteed. And so when it comes to our evangelism, church, this is why we pray. Because we believe in the, uh, the sovereignty of God. We pray because we realize, I can't change this person's heart. I can't convince this person. I can't raise the spiritual dead. But God can. God, change this person's heart. Help them to see. Help them to believe. That's us believing in the sovereignty of God. Friends, God's sovereignty does not dampen our efforts to share the gospel. Quite the opposite. God's sovereignty makes evangelism possible. It puts the burden of evangelism, not on our ability to eloquently share the gospel, it puts the, it puts the burden of evangelism on where it belongs, the shoulders of an almighty God. And we're set free to share the news. We're just the mailman and mail lady. good book to read on this, if you want to think more about this, is J.I. Packer's book. It's a little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. You want to think more about that? Wonderful book to think about Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. Friends, because God is sovereign, we should never think God can't save that person. Don't ever think that. Don't ever believe that. As long as that person has breath, they are not beyond the reach of God's arm. So keep praying, keep sharing, keep loving. What Jesus says here is also important for the, for, for the Christian. Not just in our evangelism, it's also important for the assurance of those who profess Christ. Jesus says in verse 37, Whoever comes to me... I will never cast out. I will never cast out. So, that, so not, only will, not only will all the Father gives the Son come, but Jesus says, if they come, I will, I will never cast them out. I will receive them and I will keep them. I will care for them. I, nothing will snatch that sheep out of my hand. Nothing. I will get them to the finish line. But when it comes to the question, you know, sometimes we ask this as, as, as Christians, when it comes to that question, am I really a Christian? You ever ask that? Am I really a Christian? And, and it's a question of assurance. When it comes to that question, it's common for us to look inward to how we feel in that moment. It's common for us to look inward and say, well, how have I performed this week? And to base our assurance of whether or not we're a Christian on, on us but here's what I want us to notice, church. Notice the ground that Jesus gives for our assurance before him. He will never cast out, he says in verse 37. That's the promise. Why? What's the ground? What's the basis for this promise? Verse 38. For, here it is, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Our, Christian, our assurance that we are in Christ, is rooted in the obedience of Jesus Christ. His doing the will of him who sent him. That means, if you're a Christian, the only way that you're not going to make it to heaven, the only way you're not going to make it to the finish line, is if Jesus is unfaithful. And friends, that ain't happening. So the next time your assurance gets shaky, the next time you're asking the question, am I really a Christian? Don't look inward. Don't, don't, base, don't answer that question based on how you feel or how well you've performed or how poorly you've performed. Don't look inward. Look to Christ. Remember his promise to keep you. Look to his faithfulness. Look to his obedience and his ability to do God's word. Find assurance there.
Look back at verse 35 with me. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if we hope to satisfy not just our physical stomachs, but our our hearts and our souls and what they are longing for, Jesus says there is something we must do. In a section that is focusing on God's sovereignty, that does not mean that we don't have responsibility. He gives us something we must do. We are responsible to come to him which is the same thing as saying we must believe in him, we must trust him. That's what that means to come to him. To come to him means to trust in him. Now, Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 6, Paul says that God gives every Christian a set of his armor. We're we're in a spiritual battle, and God says, okay, get ready for this fight. Here's your armor. You can read about it this afternoon in Ephesians 6. And that armor is given to us in order to protect us in this battle, in order to give us victory in this battle. But here's the deal, Christian. The breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation only do their job if you put it on. That's why Paul says, put on the armor of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is a mighty sword. Nothing can stand up to the power of God's sword. But that sword only does its job when you pick it up and use it. So if you're stuck in the, the ruts of sin, you feel, you feel trapped by sin and temptation. If you're stuck in the shortcuts of sin, it's not because Christ is unsatisfying. It's not because Jesus is unfaithful. It's because we're not coming to him. Because Jesus has set you free, Christian. We cannot understand fully or see how divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. But the Bible teaches both. And from God's perspective, there is no conflict between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. When a church member asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he answered it well. He said, I never try to reconcile friends. They're not in conflict. We may not not understand how they fit together, but both are true. And it's our job not to truncate or to add to God's word. We must receive it as he's revealing himself to us. So there's mystery there, I admit. But both are true. Human responsibility, you gotta come, you gotta believe, and divine sovereignty. I think, the, I think the right response to that thing, how those fit together, is not frustration, but worship. God's sovereignty transforms our slavish obedience that swing between pride and fear because it's based on our ability to perform. God's sovereignty transforms our obedience into obedience that is empowered by him. And when obedience is empowered by him, it sets it free to flourish with confidence and gratitude and humility. Those are the things that should mark our obedience. Friends, trusting Jesus involves an honest self-assessment of our motives and our capability. Our capability and God's capability. Secondly, we're going to trust Jesus. We must stop grumbling against God. That's point number two if you're taking notes. Stop grumbling against God. And we're going to see this in verses 41 through 58. Verse 41, look at the text. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come down to me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written, the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. When you read this section of John 6, you might hear an echo of the Old Testament. I think that's meant, that's, that's meant by John. When God delivered his people in the Old Testament from slavery in Egypt, God parted the Red Sea. And remember, what did Jesus do in John 6? He walked on the sea. God provided leadership in Moses. God's providing leadership in Jesus. 
He made water come from the rock. He made manna come from heaven. What's God doing, John? What's Jesus doing, John 6? He gives them a meal to eat. And God gives his presence to guide Israel. He provided Israel everything they needed in the Exodus. And yet, when you come to Numbers 11, their desire for meat became so strong, they began to believe that it would be better to go back to Egypt instead of trusting God. What Israel did in the Exodus happens again in John 6. They grumbled. They complained. When a roadblock, friends, when a roadblock is thrown in the path of our desires, of what we want, it's easy at that moment to complain and grumble. Isn't it? The Psalms, the Psalms teach us, they, the Psalms invite us to complain to God. That's a good thing to do. Pour out your heart to God. Complain to God. But the scriptures warn us against complaining about God. Complain to God, great. Don't complain about God. And yet, look at verse 41. The Jews grumbled about him, about Jesus. Why? Because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Now, if you're getting to know me, one of the things I might say to you in your getting to know me is, well, I I came from Nebraska, and I'm telling you that's where I'm from, that's where my parents uh, are from, my parents are still in Nebraska. And in the same way, Jesus, in saying he came down from from heaven, is showing us where he's from. He's showing us a divine origin. That his, he's showing us where his father is. So when he says that he came down from heaven, it's a claim that makes him equal with God. It's him saying, I am God. And it's what makes the crowd upset. Hold on. Came from heaven? We know Joseph. We know Mary. We, we know where he grew up. And so they object to Jesus' words. It's hard for them to hear what he's saying and accept it because they assume they know everything there is to know about Jesus because they see it with their eyes. And so they don't like what Jesus is saying, and so they begin to grumble, complain. They knew what they wanted. They wanted a political Messiah who would come in, wipe out Rome, and set them free and do their bidding. But Jesus is not fitting that mold of their idea of a perfect king. Jesus is redefining what they actually need. He's making it clear that God sent him to do something else. And friends, that's hard. It's hard to trust God when he doesn't operate on our timetable. It's hard to trust God when he doesn't do what we want. It's hard to trust God when... When he doesn't, you know, the thing that we desire, he says, not yet. But Jesus was sent by God. That phrase, from heaven, from heaven, shows up ten times in chapter 6 in order for him to emphasize his, who he is. And, and, and the fact that he's from God has been confirmed by witnesses, and yet they don't like it. They don't want it. And that's why he repeats our need for God's work in our hearts in verse 44. But notice how, notice how God, so God draws people to himself, but notice how he draws people to himself. Verse 45 shows us how God draws. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So God draws people to himself by teaching. Not forcing ideas on us against our will, but by opening our eyes to the truth. That's how he draws us to himself. God is a God who commands our praise. You know that? He commands our praise. But he commands our praise not as an insecure person fishing for compliments. He commands praise as an overflow of our enjoyment of him. He commands our praise as an eruption from being awake to the truth awake to the reality of who he is and his infinite value. When, when, I, when I go out at night and I see a beautiful sunset, I don't say to myself, come on, self, get really excited about this. I don't have to tell myself to do that. It happens, 
it, it, it happens because that sunset is beautiful. That sunset demands my praise because it is beautiful. That's how God demands our praise. Because he's infinitely valuable. So God speaks to us and teaches us through his word. The word that we're considering this morning, the question is, are we teachable? Do we rely on God to open our eyes? Being teachable requires humility. What about you? Would the people that know you best describe you as a person who's teachable? Do you have the wisdom from above, as James says in James 3, wisdom that is open to reason? When we grumble about God, we are saying to God, God, you don't know what's best for me. I do. That's what makes grumbling so evil. Jesus is not our peer, our colleague, our equal that we can argue with. He is our king. He is our creator. And he has the right to tell us what to do. And he is the one who is good to tell us what to do. And so we need to hear Jesus' command in verse 43, do not grumble. So we've seen, so far we've seen in this section Jesus' authority, that he's king, and so we should obey him, we should do what he says. But our heart still is asking the question, how can we do that? How can we obey? How can we submit to him? How can we trust Jesus with everything when we have no control over him? He's free. How can we trust him when, 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 when he's just going to do what he's going to do? And we have to follow him wherever he takes us. How can we trust him then? Look at verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that the one who may eat of it may not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him, I will give for the life of this world, is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on the flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All right. Now, when, when Jesus says something like, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, you got to pause and ask, okay, what's he saying there? Especially if you're new to Christianity, those words might be like, what in the world is he saying? Is he calling us to be cannibals? No. Let me just put that question at ease. He's, not, he, he's using metaphorical language here. But in order to understand what he means, which we need to ask, we need to begin with, with establishing what he's not saying. Okay? Some of you may have come from religious backgrounds that teach that, that um, in the Lord's Supper, communion or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, the bread becomes the literal body of Christ and the wine becomes the literal blood of Christ. It's a, a theological term that is, is called transubstantiation. And they'll actually... Uh, use this text to teach that. But Jesus is not talking about the Lord's Supper in John 6. He's not. So that would be a misapplication, I think, of this text. And the reason we know that is because he doesn't actually establish the Lord's Supper until a year later on the night that he's arrested. So there was no context for that. The other reason is that if Jesus were talking about the Lord's Supper in this context, it would then contradict everything that he's taught about grace. If he's saying, you've got to eat the, my flesh and drink my blood, and then you'll have eternal life, that would, be, that would be to contradict what he said in verse 29, which is saying that salvation is through faith. 
Jesus is not saying eat this magical meal and you win eternal life. That's not how it works. So that's not what he's talking about. And another reason that he's not talking about the Lord's Supper we know is because he says in verse 63 that his words have a spiritual, not a physical meaning. It is the spirit who gives life. Not the, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, he says. So one way of understanding this is that John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described in John 6. Does that make sense? This is this, the Lord's Supper, John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. Rather, the Lord's Supper is about what is described by Jesus in John 6. So what does Jesus mean then? We, we know what he, we, we've, we've said what he's not meaning. What does he mean positively then? What is he talking about? Well, Jesus starts by saying that the biggest problem that we have is not a growling stomach. Need bread. They think it is. But he's saying, no, 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 that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your sin that leads to death. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They had the bread and they died. Bread's not the problem. You're dying because of your sin is your big problem. And so we need something to remove the stain of sin that leads to death. We need to be made right with God. And that's why Jesus came. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John loves his metaphors. Chapter 1, verse 29 Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, how will Jesus, who is this Lamb, this Passover Lamb, how will he take away our sin? In chapter 6, we see how he will do it. Notice the word for in verse 51. The bread that I give for the life of the world. That word for is a word that means on behalf of, in the place of. In other words, Jesus is willingly laying down his life. When he says his flesh, he's talking about his life as a substitute on the cross to reconcile us to a holy God. On the cross, he takes our sin and gives us his perfect righteousness. So what then does Jesus, so if, 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 he's, if, if the flesh and the blood are talking about his substitutionary death, what does he mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Well, here's, here's what I encourage you to do. Put verse 54 right next to verse 40. And what you're going to see is that verse 54 and verse 40 actually are in parallel. So verse 40 makes sense, right? He says, whoever looks on the sun, verse 40, well, that's equivalent in verse 54 to whoever feeds on my flesh. So to look on the sun is to feed on his flesh. And then whoever believes in him, that's verse 40, is the same as whoever drinks my blood. So in order to believe in him is to drink his blood. So here's what, I think what he means then is to eat and drink, eat his flesh and drink his blood. What he means is to believe. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood means to trust him, to believe in him, to rely on Jesus for life. It's a metaphor. He's not, he's not saying literally be a cannibal and eat his flesh and blood. He's saying trust in me. That's what the text is showing us. Friends, in our greatest need, when we deserve the righteous wrath of God, Jesus did not give you and I a five-step plan and say, go do it. You can do it. I believe in you. He doesn't. He didn't send us a five-step plan. He sends us himself. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Verse 51, I am the the living bread. He doesn't just send a loaf of bread. He says, I'm sending you myself. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And my friends, I think this is how we know that we can trust God without being in control, without knowing what tomorrow holds for us. You can trust him because he gave himself for you and me. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. One writer puts it this way. Imagine I sent my son next door to ask our neighbor if he could borrow his hammer. If my son said, Dad, what if, what if the neighbor doesn't want us to borrow his hammer? 
An argument from the greater to the lesser might be, well, son, he was happy to lend his truck to me all day yesterday, so I know he'll be happy to let us borrow his hammer. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. A truck is much more valuable than a hammer. So if, if, if yesterday he was inclined and happy to let me borrow his truck yesterday, he will be inclined to do the lesser thing. That's Paul's point in Romans 8.32. That's Jesus' point in John 6. God did not spare his own son. God's son is of infinite value to him. He did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. And so if God has done that which is most costly, most difficult to show his heart for us, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning that he is for us. We can know, we don't have to worry that he will withhold something good from us. He's already, he didn't spare his own son. That's the greater thing. So we can be confident today that he'll provide all that we need. Will he not with him graciously give us all things? And the answer is he will. That's how we can know that he is trustworthy, that he's good. And so in John 6, we see God revealing his heart to us that we might trust in him. But what remains, friends, is our decision. It's not enough to just know these things. Jesus is demanding a decision from us. So point number three, our last point is this. Choose to come and trust Jesus. Choose to come and trust Jesus. You've got you to make that choice. And that's verses 59 through 71. Look at the text with me. Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what, is, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So keep the big picture in mind here in John 6. Moments before what we just read, moments before, Jesus had droves of people, thousands of people clamoring to listen to him following him around the lake where i mean he he had no rest wherever he went they followed he was popular he was so popular they wanted to crown him as king but jesus didn't come to win a popularity contest he came to rescue sinners if you have a paper cut a band-aid is sufficient if you have a gunshot wound, you call 911. The nature of the solution reveals the gravity of our problem. So when Jesus announced that he had to die, he had to give his flesh, he had to shed his blood to rescue sinners, he's saying, that's how serious your sin problem is. And the response was clear in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And the crowds that moments before clamored to make him king now faded away. Thousands of followers would leave Jesus that day. Thousands. Those are not the kind of numbers that you want to report to your denomination. I think one peculiar detail that we have to wrestle with, though, is why does John include 
this detail about Judas Iscariot. If you, re- if you read this text this week, you might be like, why is he talking about, why does he drop Judas Iscariot in there? It kind of seems random. Why mention Jesus' betrayer in verses 70 and 71? Why mention him in verse 64? Well, again, keep the big picture in mind. Many of the people are refusing to believe Jesus. Thousands have left Jesus. And now we're told that the devil has penetrated the ranks of Jesus' disciples. Things are not looking good. If you pause the story there, it it looks like God's plan is not working. It, It looks like the devil's winning. That he's got the upper hand. Right? In church, the world may turn against us. There may be days when we are misunderstood or slandered by the world we live in. We may be hated or by the world or lose our jobs or lose friends because we are followers of Jesus. He's going to talk about that later on in chapter 15. But in that moment of hostility, the temptation for us is to grumble. The temptation for us is to question God. Does he know what he's doing? Doesn't he see that it looks like we're losing? And friends, it's then in that moment that we need a healthy dose of God's sovereignty. We need to be reminded of God's unfailing sovereignty. The sovereignty that that John has been highlighting all through chapter 6. Listen, Jesus was not surprised by Judas' betrayal. Verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning those who who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas' betrayal did not frustrate God's plan. Jesus, being the sovereign God that he is, would use the betrayal to get him to the cross. And yes, he would die. And they would put his cold, lifeless body in a grave. And for a moment... It looked like Jesus had lost. The disciples even thought they had lost. But on the third day, Jesus rose again. And his resurrection shows us that he has defeated sin and Satan and death itself. And though we will one day die if Jesus does not come back first, Jesus promises in this text to raise us up with him on the last day. He will raise you up if you trust in him. So Christian, when the day is dark and wickedness seems to be gaining ground and it seems like God's plan is failing, don't for one minute think that God's plan has failed. It hasn't. It can't. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll admit, circumstances that we go through today or tomorrow or a month from now, circumstances may be so hard or painful that it makes it hard for us to believe that God is not losing. But God promises even the help to help us believe. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He's saying, I'm going to give you life. I'm going to strengthen you through my word. What you're hearing from God's word right now is meant to give you life, is meant to strengthen your weary soul. Thousands of people would ditch Jesus that day. No thanks, this is too hard. Don't like what you're saying. How will you respond? You have to decide. There's no neutrality here. A non-response is a rejection. You have to respond. What will you do with Jesus? Peter gets it right in verse 67. Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? It's hard teaching. People are leaving. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Church, Jesus and he alone has the words of a life. We have no other place we can go. And so for us and for even for those who are here or listening and who have not yet trusted in Christ, Jesus comes to us in this text this morning and offers us life. Life in him. 
life in the bread of life, satisfaction in him. We, we, we come to him, we eat, we dine, uh, we feast upon him in faith, and we will never hunger or thirst again. And that promise is to all and to any and to everyone who will come to him and trust in him. Come to him. Trust in him. And do that today. Let's pray.